Well, good morning. Thank you for singing loud. It is wonderful. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're beginning a new chapter this morning, and we continue to press on in our study. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Listen this morning to the reading of God's Word. But a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test together the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Now, before we enter into our story being presented to us here, let me see if I can prepare the way for us. I want to set the theological stage, if you would. If someone pushed me, like really cornered me to explain everything that is happening in the world today, such as rampant immorality, corruption, the murder of infants, war, persecution and oppression of truth, etc., and capture all of it in one single word, I would take that word from Genesis 3.15. In that verse, God spoke to the serpent, who is Satan, and to Satan, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So what's the word that explains the fallenness of this world? Enmity. Enmity. The word enmity means hostility, hatred, or strife. Enmity is conflict fueled by hatred. 
Can you see enmity taking place in our world today? But notice also that this enmity is between offsprings, which can only mean that the enmity happens from generation to generation. It is ongoing. It also means that God has his people and Satan has his people. Later on in the history of redemption, the people of God were set apart from the people of Satan through Abraham and the covenant sign of circumcision. And while the other nations, the ones not set apart for and by God, did abominable things and walked in darkness, Israel was called to be holy and to walk in the light of God's written revelation. But as we know, the people of God had no easy time being holy. In fact, the people of Israel were prone to want to be like the other nations. The great sin of Israel is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where they asked for a human king so they could be like the other nations. They rejected the kingship of God and desired the kingship of man. But behind it all, behind this, this struggle to be holy was Satan. Always tempting, always corrupting, always deceiving. Perhaps the best summary of Satan's exclusive purpose is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, where we read, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David. Did you hear that? Then Satan stood against Israel. Satan's number one desire and purpose is to stand against, to oppose. And that, by the way, is what the name Satan means, adversary. He's the one who opposes. He's the one who is always standing against. But opposes who? Well, since Satan cannot thwart God's plans, he attacks God's people. And the enmity God decreed in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, has gone on for thousands of years, and it's still going on. To the Thessalonians, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, We wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. To Timothy, Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.15, for some have already strayed after Satan. And later on in the book of Acts, Paul will tell us that he was sent as an apostle to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Acts 26 verse 18. As you can see, the spiritual hostility begun in Genesis 3 is clearly a reality among us today. So in the back of our challenges and the fight for truth in the 21st century context is this ancient reality of enmity. It hasn't gone away. And this, my friends, explains the fierce nature of the battle. Now, with this in the back of our minds, we are ready now to think of Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 within its proper context. I just have four main headings for you this morning. 
the story, the point, the doctrines, and the lessons. Let's go to the story. Here's the story. Satan tempted Ananias and Sapphira to act deceitfully by lying to the spirit, thus incurring a severe punishment, which led to corporate fear. That is the summary of the story. Satan tempted Ananias and Sapphira to act deceitfully by lying to the spirit, thus incurring a severe punishment, which led to corporate fear. Therefore, we must be clear that the story is not about money. I just needed to get that out of the way. The story is not about money. Rather, the story is about sin provoked by Satan, carried out by people. Once again, it is meant to present a historical picture of the enmity between Satan and God's people. What we have in front of us this morning is a story that shows the internal unity and generosity of the early church interrupted by temptation and sin. And there are a couple of things worth noticing at the outset. This is the first time Satan is mentioned by name in the book of Acts, which means Luke wanted us to see Satan's schemes in action. This is also the first reported case of serious sin coming from within the gathering rather than from the outside. Now, if you notice, this is one story made up of two parallel stories. What happened to Ananias also happened to Sapphira. Taken as a whole, then, the story has four main sections. The first section is Luke's explanation of their sin, namely, secret greediness, verses 1 and 2. The second section is Peter's confrontation with the couple about their secret sin. And this happens in verses 3 and 4 and verses 8 and 9. The third section is God's severe judgment on the couple, namely, what? Public death. And this is in verses 5 and 6 and then in verse 10. And the final section is the corporate effects of these events, namely, great fear, verses 5 and 11. And that's the pattern. That's the pattern of the whole story. Satanic temptation becomes a secret sin. The secret sin becomes publicly known. And the publicly known sin was publicly and severely punished by death. These public events evoked a fearful response from everyone. That's the story in summary form. Now, what's the point? What's the point? We need to be so careful with this story. It would be fairly easy to get lost in all the details of the story and to give ourselves to speculation. For instance, we don't know much about this couple. We don't know if Ananias and Sapphira had a reputation for being deceptive, dishonest, and greedy. We don't even know exactly why the punishment was so swift and so severe. The most likely explanation is that God severely punished them because these were the beginning stages of the church. Thus, the point needed to be made very, very clear even for generations to come. So clear, in fact, 
that the point has come down to us with undeniable force thousands of years later. Well, what's the point of the story? Here it is. God is holy and hates sin. Therefore, he desires holiness among his people, but Satan will always oppose us. I want to repeat the point. God is holy and hates sin. Therefore, he desires holiness among his people, but Satan will always oppose us. That is the point of the passage. Acts 5, 1 through 11 is an illustration of how the holiness of God relates to the holiness of God's people and why it matters. And why it matters that you and I walk in holiness. Therefore, it would be appropriate to think of Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 as our Isaiah 6 moment. This is our Isaiah 6 experience. In Isaiah chapter 6, prophet Isaiah saw the Lord in his glory and majesty, and around the throne were angelic beings singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Having witnessed the glorious sight of the majesty of God, Isaiah then reaches the following conclusion. You know the conclusion, right? Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Clearly, the holiness of God had a deep impact upon Isaiah. But I will return to that at the conclusion of our time. At this point, I would like to take a few moments to consider some of the doctrines we see revealed in these verses And by doctrines, I mean to ask this question. What does our passage teach us about specific topics of great importance to us? In your notes, I have included a series of doctrines that I wanted us to think about together. Consider the first doctrine, Christology. What is Christology? The study, I hear a lot of murmuring, Christ, is the study of? Christ, the doctrine of Christ. So the question we're asking is, what does this passage teach us about Christ? Well, here's the lesson. Christ is the head of the church, and he rules by the Holy Spirit. Christ is the head of the church, and he rules by the Holy Spirit. When Peter confronted Sapphira in verse 9, he asked her, how is it that you have agreed to test the Spirit of whom? The Spirit of the Lord. That is an incredibly important statement. The invisible Holy Spirit is not just any spirit. He is the spirit of the Lord. And in the New Testament, almost always the name Lord refers to Jesus. It should always be in in the front of our minds. The truth that Jesus ascended, but he has not left us alone. And that the church is not a headless body. This is, in fact, a tremendously weighty matter, for verse 9 teaches us that our actions and our decisions are always done before the Lord, Christ Jesus. It teaches us that we can never detach what we do from who we are, and we are subjects of the King. The physical absence of Jesus from us 
only means that he is spiritually present in us and among us by his Holy Spirit, whom we cannot see. Moreover, brothers and sisters, our accountability is to the Lord, because as Christians, we are in union with Christ by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we have a Lord, and our actions are always done under his lordship, always. The second doctrine that I want to point out is pneumatology. What is pneumatology? The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. What does this passage teach us about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. In verses 3, 4, and 9, Peter charges both Ananias and Sapphira with lying and testing the Holy Spirit respectively. And the point is made. Energies and impersonal forces cannot be lied to or put to the test. And that, by the way, is what the Jehovah's Witness believe about the Spirit, that He is just an influence, an impersonal force. But He's not an impersonal force. He is a divine person. Energies and impersonal forces cannot be lied to. Clearly, then, the Apostle Peter believed the Holy Spirit to be a person, not an impersonal energy simply floating around somewhere. The Holy Spirit possesses a mind and a will of His own. Otherwise, the charge itself would make absolutely no sense. They lied to someone, not to something. Moreover, the Holy Spirit is not only a person, but a divine person. Remember the, the hymn, God in Three Persons, Blessed Trinity. He's a divine person. The Spirit is God, as Peter makes clear in verses 3 and 4 taken together. In verse 3, Ananias is said to have lied to the Holy Spirit. And at the end of verse 4, Ananias is also said to have lied to God. Why does he say that? Well, he says that because to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God, which gives us the reason why the deeds of Ananias and Sapphira were so despicable and evil. This brings us all the way back to Coram Deo, doesn't it? Coram Deo. We are always in the sight of God. One commentator made this insightful remark, and I quote, How careful men are to provide against human detection, but how careless about ser the searching eye of God. End quote. But this is not only revealing of the Spirit. This passage also teaches us something about the doctrine of man, which is known as anthropology. Anthropology, the doctrine of man. What does this passage teach us about who we are? Well, here's a, a simple sample. Man is a creature of weakness and responsible for his actions. Man is a creature of weakness and responsible for his actions. The questions, why has Satan filled your heart and how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord are not meant to indicate ignorance on Peter's part. Peter is not showing ignorance, but knowledge. What knowledge? Well, knowledge of personal responsibility. You could rephrase the question like this. Why did you allow Satan 
to fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Man's responsibility is further confirmed in verse 4, where Peter asked again Ananias, why is it that you have, you have contrived this deed in your heart? The word contrive means to be deliberate in the creation of something. Ananias intentionally acted against God. And to Sapphira, his wife, Peter asked, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? So what do we learn? Man is a responsible creature accountable to God. Now, on a practical note, biblical anthropology or the biblical doctrine of man is clear in that we are weak apart from the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira were not dependent on the Spirit and were thus deceived by the enemy. Therefore, we are called to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, not our own. It is grace from beginning to end. And speaking of grace, here is the next doctrine, doctrine for us to consider. Soteriology. Soteriology. What is soteriology? The doctrine of salvation. Specifically, I want to consider the doctrine of grace. Oh, we need to understand this so very well. God's grace is not a license to sin. God's grace is never a license to sin. We should never presume on God's grace. I have an informed idea of how Satan tempted or filled Ananias' heart. And it has to do with grace and how we understand it. I will expand on that when we get to the lessons. The other doctrine that we hear about here is demonology. And this one is an easy one, right? What is demonology? The doctrine of demons. That's an easy one, isn't it? What do we learn? Satan is the father of lies. Satan is the father of lies. We know Satan stands against God's people. That is his purpose. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we're looking at his strategy. This passage reveals how Satan manipulates and deceives God's people. And he does that primarily through lies. But here we find evidence that explains how is it that Satan lies. How the arrows of deception are shot to the heart. And we'll get there in just a moment. Next doctrine, hamartiology. Hamartiology. And hamartiology is the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin. What do we learn? Sin is still crouching at the door. The question is this. What was their sin? Ananias and Sapphira. That was a pretty severe punishment. From the context itself, we can see that their sin was greediness dressed up in the garb of self-righteousness. We know that they were self-righteous because, based on the context, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to belong to the club of landowners who were known for their generosity, 
such as Barnabas mentioned in chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. They were looking to be seen as righteous by the community, but it was only for show. In this sense, Ananias and Sapphira fit right in with the Pharisees, who, according to Jesus in Matthew 23, 28, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Secondly, they were greedy. They were willing to put on an act before everyone just so they could cover up their love of money. However, if you pay attention, I think there is something even more sinister going on here. And again, it is not my desire to speculate about their eternal destinies. I don't know whether they were true believers or just unbelievers who had infiltrated the church. But we do know this. They lied to the Spirit. They tested the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, I think it means something truly awful. I believe it means something very close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, think about this. The religious leaders of Israel blasphemed the Holy Spirit when or how? When they attributed to Satan the works of the Spirit during the ministry of Jesus. That was their blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. They attributed to Satan the works of the Spirit. What happened in the case of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, I think they reversed the order. They wanted to attribute to the Spirit that which was inspired by Satan. This is not just a simple lie. What they were trying to say is this. Look at what the Spirit is doing through us when in reality, what they were doing was the product of satanic deception. Beware, my brother and sister, of the deceitfulness of sin. Consider with me the very appropriate description given by Paul, which could very well be a description of Ananias and Sapphira. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, we read, among many things, this, these words from Paul. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. The deceitfulness of sin is this. Sin can even disguise itself as something good and godly, when in reality it is deception and evil. Ananias and Sapphira appeared godly, but in reality they were deceivers. And this, is the, and, and this connects to our next doctrine, ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of the church. I really need you to pay, pay attention to the following words. The biggest danger for the church normally comes from within. The biggest danger for the church normally comes from within. Satan knows that the most effective strategy to cause the greatest amount of damage is to do it from inside rather than the outside. 
Hence, the warning given to Christians in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. This is a very important warning for us. Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 13. Listen to these words. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, take care, brothers. This is talking to us. Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called day or today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Go back to Acts. Brothers and sisters, these are very dangerous times. And you must guard your own heart, not only for your own sake, but also for the sake of the spiritual unity and the spiritual well-being of those that you and I consider our brothers and sisters in the faith. You need me to be diligent and to keep my own heart with all vigilance, as Proverbs 4.23 says. But I need that from you as well. Too many in our day have fallen prey to things such as Christian deconstructionism, which is, as the word entails, means to tear your faith down little by little. Why is that a particular temptation today and a serious danger to the church? It is a temptation because the more the world around us grows cold and hostile toward biblical truth, the more pressure you and I will feel to abandon those doctrines or those truths that seem inconvenient or less popular. And it doesn't take too many members to start questioning biblical truth before the church finds itself in deep pain. A healthy church begins with healthy individuals who are keeping their own hearts in check, unlike Ananias and Sapphira. My prayer is that the Lord will keep us from the dangers and the deceitfulness of sin, which is very much alive today. So let's go into the lessons this morning. We have looked at some of the doctrines. Let's consider some of the lessons, some of the practical lessons we can take home and consider. So the big question is this, how in the world do we apply this passage to us this morning? To an extent, we have already been applying this passage, but I want to be a bit more specific. Now, can you see the dangers in the application of this passage? I can see several dangers when it comes to applying this passage to our modern context. I can see the prosperity gospel preacher using this to threaten people into giving all they have. 
I can see a legalistic preacher using verse 7 to call for the worship service to be no less than three hours long. It is biblical, right? It is biblical. I could use more time for preaching. I can see the manipulative preaching, calling people to the front in every service and asking, so how much have you given today? And don't lie to me or else. Now, thankfully, none of those will be a part of our application today. Rather, I will seek to give you lessons that flow out naturally from the passage, and they are universal. Here's the first lesson we learn from this passage. <laughs> you may not like this one. The devil cannot make you do it. That's a popular one, right? The devil made me do it. Not really. He cannot make you do anything contrary to God's word. But doesn't it say that though? Like literally? Well, it says that he filled Ananias' heart, but Ananias died for it. The devil filled his heart, but Ananias was held responsible for his actions. Satan tempted, but Ananias lied. The implicit point is that Ananias could have resisted the devil, as we are told to do in James chapter 4, verse 4. How do we do that? How, are we, how do we resist the devil? Well, here's the, the whole verse, James 4, 4. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So how do we resist the devil? We resist the devil by submitting ourselves to God. A submissive life is a resisting life. Brothers and sisters, we are responsible for our actions and our reactions. At no point can any Christian ever say, the devil made me do it. At no point. Now, having said that, here's the next lesson. Satan is at war with the church. Satan is at war with the church, whether you want it or not, whether you are aware of it or not, we are at war. We must be mindful of the fact that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ does have an enemy, and he is powerful, he is cunning, never sleeping, and always seeking to destroy, especially the church of the living God. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, that we wrestle against spiritual forces of evil. In that verse, Paul issues a statement of fact, not a possibility. The first requirement to fighting well is knowing that you have an enemy. If you don't know that, you will let your guard down and either you won't fight or you will fight the wrong enemy. Satan is at war with us. He is at war with you. But now we must ask, what is Satan's primary methodology? How does he attack? Here's the third lesson. Satan's primary target is the truth. Satan's primary target is the truth. Satan filled Ananias' heart with lies, just like he did Adam and Eve's. But here's an incredibly important lesson concerning Satan's war on truth, which we learn from Ananias and Sapphira. He has many schemes, but here's the one we see employed in Acts 4, 5, 11, 1 through 11. 
Listen to this. Don't miss this. Satan wants to convince people that truth is inconsequential. Satan wants to convince you and I that truth is inconsequential. Now, let us go a little deeper. Here's the next lesson. Beware of secret dishonesties. Beware of secret dishonesties. Now, my friends, this is about to get intense. Let me begin with the basics. We must be vigilant about sins secretly taking root in the heart. You must be. We are called to be a people of truth and light, not of lies and darkness. We must not live in the darkness of secret dishonesties. In fact, so that you will remember, here is the only thing you are allowed to do in secret. Feel free to close the door and pray. That's it. You have God's permission. If you want to live a secret life, make sure it is a life of prayer, never of dishonesty. At the end of the day, you're only deceiving yourself. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, the secret dishonesty was greediness. They lied because they loved money. And in order to get what they wanted, in order to satisfy their greediness, they lied. Herein is Satan's strategy, and it is now fully exposed for us to see. This is an insight you must take to heart. Satan lied to them. Satan lied to them. Here's how it works. Satan's temptations. Satan's temptations always come accompanied with a false sense of security. Don't miss that. Satan's temptations always come accompanied with a false sense of security. What do I mean by that? When he sends the temptation, he always says at the end, everything will be okay. But when allowed to enter into our minds and not taken captive, those temptations, when acted upon, will inevitably bring destruction to your life. If not in this life, then in the next if you are allowing secret dishonesties, secret sins in your life, you must confess them to God now, and you must stop now. It is urgent. It is urgent. You do not want to play with your life. If you don't confess your sins and you allow secret, secret sins to take root in your heart, you are playing with fire. Speaking of fire, give careful consideration to these questions from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Good questions. The point. The point. 
don't miss the point. There is no such thing as inconsequential secret sin. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as inconsequential secret sin. Sin without consequence is a lie from Satan. If you carry your sin next to your chest, meaning if you are intimate with your dishonesties, like Ananias and Sapphira were with theirs, then don't deceive yourself thinking that everything will be okay. Now, let us, let us turn up the, the heat a little more, if you don't mind. And when I say if you don't mind, I really mean even if you do, we'll do it. We're naturally led to our next lesson. Divine judgment is a real threat. Divine judgment is a real threat. Remember what I said about grace? We should never presume on grace, abuse grace, or think of grace as a license to sin. Divine judgment is a real threat. Ananias and Sapphira died under judgment. You want to be shocked? You want to be shocked this morning? Get this, God killed them. God killed them. I really don't think the apostles were worried about being seeker sensitive during that worship service. Now this, as many things do, reminded me of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. I believe Satan's strategy against Ananias and Sapphira was the exact same one he used against Adam and Eve. Let me prove that to you. The temptation went something like this. Go ahead. Keep some of the money for yourself and lie about it. Everything will be okay. You will not surely die. You will not surely die. There's a name for those types of words that come from Satan. In Ephesians 5, Verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul gives them a name. Listen to what Paul said. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What is the name that Paul gives this kind of temptation that says everything will be okay? Empty words. Empty words. Empty words are those words that lead you to believe that both truth and sin are inconsequential. The type of words that will seek to convince you that unrepentant sin does not lead to wrath and judgment and destruction. Beware, brothers and sisters, beware of empty words that seek to minimize the consequences of sin and make light of God's truth. They are empty words. So rather than listening to empty words, we must heed the next and final lesson. Fear can be a proper response. If the story of Ananias and Sapphira gives you the spiritual chills, good, because it should. These truths are meant to cause great fear to fall on all of us. But we're not speaking about sinful fear. Rather, this is the type of fear that promotes holiness among God's people. And it causes us to think about the seriousness of confessing with our mouth that God is our God, for he is not to be trifled with. 
It is not a minor or a little thing to walk in hypocrisy. There is true danger. As I said toward the beginning, let the story of Ananias and Sapphira be a type of Isaiah 6 experience for us. And that is precisely where I want to finish. Let us turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6 and we will be done. Isaiah 6 is the calling of Isaiah. And as God calls him into the prophetic ministry, we read these words, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. On that day, Isaiah was both afraid because of the reality of his sin and the holiness of God, but he was also forgiven because of God's goodness and grace. The Lord, the Lord still is a consuming fire. And we must come to him with reverence and awe. But all the while, we, the while we must remember that in Christ Jesus, we have our refuge from the wrath. And that in Christ, we have been reconciled to God. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again, not so that we might be free to sin, but so that we might be free from sin. Therefore, as we consider the terrifying example of Ananias and Sapphira, consider God's call. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And because of Jesus and by faith in him, brothers and sisters, let us heed that call today, for our Lord is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder Help us to be faithful to you by the work of your Spirit. Help us to consider the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who took upon himself the wrath to come. And help us to find in him and upon the cross our refuge. And so we look to Christ, the one who died for us. And I pray, Lord, for any unrepentant sin that might be taking place among us. Father, lead your people to repentance. Lead us to the cross. And I pray for the work of the Spirit among us and in us. May he do what only he can do, and that is to transform lives. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.